Are you ready to get sexy? <laughs> uh, well, uh, um, my name is Susan Ferentinos, and I am delighted to offer you, to, uh, to welcome you to this session um, that we have put together this afternoon to talk about interpreting sexuality at historic sites. And um, our general plan for the afternoon is of course the general plan of most conference <laughs> sessions. Um, the three of us will be talking. I will be speaking first, um, making a general argument about the importance of um, why historians study sexuality, the history of sexuality, and then um, making an argument for why I think it's important that historic sites are um, also interpreting this part of history. And then, so I'll be talking a little uh, more conceptually, and then we'll bring it down to the local level with a case study from North Dakota um, <laughs> with Angela and Casey, who will be talking specifically about some on-the-ground work, research, and interpretation that they've been doing. So. If I may first introduce the panelists, starting with myself. <laughs> I am Susan Ferentinos, as I said. I'm a public history researcher, writer, and consultant. And a few years ago, three, four years ago, I published a book through the AASLH series on interpreting LGBT history at museums and historic sites. Um, and I still work very heavily in that field, but since the publication of that book, I have been working more broadly in history of sexuality, more broadly defined, um, regardless of the specifics of sexual expression. And so that um, is really what our focus is today, is, is talking about sexuality broadly defined. Um, my Twitter handle is History Sue. You're welcome to uh, tweet from my presentation or follow me. Our next speaker will be Angela Smith, and she's an associate professor of history at North Dakota State University, where she teaches um, public history, digital history, and 20th century US history. And she's the author of a biography of the poet, John Beecher, and her recent research has involved the history of sex work in Fargo, North Dakota, and that is what she'll uh, be talking about in her presentation today. Our third speaker is Casey Lynn Johnson. She is working on her master's degree in public history at North Dakota State University, and also has uh, numerous jobs, <laughs> two of which are public history jobs. She works both at the Comstock House in Moorhead, Minnesota, and the Cass County Historical Society Bonanzaville in Fargo. So without further ado, allow me to make an argument for why we should get sexy at historic sites. What is, what is the value to be gained besides simple purient interest uh, to be looking at history of sexuality? And again, um, when we were talking about, when historians of sexuality talk about sexuality, they're talking about a wide 
range of things. So just to clarify, a lot of times we are talking about behavior, sex acts, uh, what people do when the lights get low, but we're talking about other things too that are encompassed by ideas about sexuality, assumptions about sexuality. So this includes moral strictures of a given historical time period, customs surrounding courtship and marriage, the meanings attached to those actions, childbearing, how people are raising children and the, and the messages that they're conveying to the next generation concerning morality, their bodies and sexuality, um, the sex trade, sex work, and, um, and just generally ideas about normalcy, one's uh, biological urges, what one should do about those um, sexual desires, a whole range of things. So as you can see, or uh, I'll make the assumption that you can see that this is very interesting stuff to be getting into and potentially very interesting for visitors as well. But historians of sexuality make an argument that by looking at these aspects of the past, um, we get a new perspective on a lot of um, very important things that we've, we want to learn about the past. It can shed insight on things like um, societal power dynamics or who has power in a culture and a society at a given amount of time, at a given period of time. Um, who has sexual access to whom? Who gets to decide what is considered normal behavior and abnormal behavior? Why are they declaring certain actions as one or the other of that? And how are the assumptions about sexuality used to control people and enforce the, the, power the status quo power structures? So as one example, when we think of it that way, looking at ideas about sexuality and the sexual nature of different groups of people provide a particularly fun and fascinating way to kind of get at intersectionality in the past. Those, the places where these categories of analysis that we're all familiar with, race, class, and gender, um, where they intersect and where um, divisions are made between groups of people based on various identities that they hold. And um, we can see this, for instance, in um, the defense of Jim Crow segregation in the early 20th century. Much of the basis for those ar the arguments for that system uh, were based on assumptions that African-American male sexuality was rampant and uncontrollable and specifically um, geared towards white women. And so the argument for an entire system of racial control was um, in large part dependent on people holding so certain assumptions about the sexuality of different groups of people, whose, sexuality, whose sexual purity 
needed to be protected, whose sexuality was a danger to societal order. We also see this, uh, this very minute, <laughs> um, in conversations about um, sexual violence, and that's you know referencing the Take Back. The, uh, this is a poster for a Take Back the Night march from the 90s, I believe. But um, Take Back the Night marches are um, protests, ongoing protests against sexual violence, and. It, um, just looking at this poster, it reminds us that the threat of sexual violence severely limits women's ability to move through public space as individuals. And certainly, that ability has been um, con uh, constricted or expanded at different historical moments. But again, you can see how people's lives are governed by sexual systems when we're looking at the past. Another thing we can um, get at if we're looking at um, the history of sexuality is the anxieties within a culture at a particular time. And there's so much stuff, <laughs> there's so much stuff going on in this, um, in this image right here. We can't get into all of it, but you can just really quickly, you see well-dressed people dancing. They're falling into a pit of despair, sin, hell. I'm not sure, but like there's a, a red light lantern. She, uh, this figure is this scary, creepy figure is holding back the dogs of disease and suicide. Uh, we see a Chinese restaurant there on the <laughs> on the left. People are gonna start eating Chinese food, or this is a cultural code that perhaps has been lost to me about. Um, with the association of Chinese immigrants with prostitution, I'm not sure. But um, the fine print of this says, small wonder the protests against the grizzly bear and the turkey trot, which are, were two early 20th century um, dances. But so simply dancing will lead to all of this <laughs> mess of urbanization and cultural intermixing that was also going on in the early 20th century. And then not setting aside just the crazy anxieties that one can tap into by looking at sexuality, um, just simple cultural assumptions of normalcy, for instance, can reveal a lot if we're thinking about, um, about sexuality. For instance, in both of these images, which were, are from the Library of Congress contained in a uh, collection of, of humorous scenes, we see that um, women's sexuality is treated as a commodity to be exchanged for other things that um, the women portrayed here work for a living. And then so it says something about working class women's sexuality or sexual availability and it also raises the question of like, so clearly this time period had a different feeling about sexual harassment, right? That there, it's very normalized that um, women in the course of their workday will be dealing with sexual advances. And also like what, where is the humor in these 
images. Like, you know, we can kind of see it, but we can also say, or we could be looking at um, a power, uh, power structure revealed in these ostensibly humorous pictures, but what, what about the norms of the early 20th century, late 19th century, made this that it would be universally seen as humor, humorous by Americans. So that's generally why, you know, arguments that historians of sexuality make um, about the importance of the work that they do. And I'd like to just very quickly loop it back around to specifically public history venues. To begin with, particularly with historic house museums, what better place to talk about so many of these things than within domestic space, right? Within the home, you've got people teaching morality to the, new gener to the next generation. Families are debating, changing standards of morality. <laughs> people are having a lot of sex. They're bearing children at certain points in history in the home. They're, um, they're negotiating what marriage means. Historic house museums have such a potential to be talking about all of these issues. And yes, yet in reality, sexuality may be more than most things that are covered in these venues. It tends to be treated, there are certainly exceptions, but tends to be treated really ahistorically, right? We talk about marriage and we act like everyone knows what that means, even though it is a historically contingent concept. Yes. Marriage in the 18th century was a very different thing <laughs> than marriage in the 21st century. And there's a real possibility to unpack that and, and use that as a means for visitors to make connections to the past. Uh, falling in love, negotiating the terms of marriage, raising children, these are things that contemporary visitors can relate to, but they can, because it ha they have a personal connection to it, they can potentially be drawn in to the changes over time that these institutions have, um, have undergone. And so, and also there's a real potential to build a bridge between the past and the present because sexual politics are still being debated today. And, uh, and there's a lot of um, sexuality in our own time that's very present, and so it can be a link to the past while emphasizing that it's not uh, the same thing over time. So I'm gonna turn it over to the on-the-ground experience, but let me just say in closing that these ideas are coming out of a chapter that I've written that has much more detail and, and examples um, that is coming out in a forthcoming book on historic house museums. So the site is up there. It's not published yet, but hopefully in the next six months it'll be coming out from Roman and Littlefield. And with that, I turn it over to Angela Smith. So good afternoon. Uh, that was so nicely done. You tied that up really <laughs> nice. Um, I'm coming at this at historical sex work from a different perspective. 
Uh, I've kind of backed into the kind of questions that Susan has brought out uh, in her analysis of why it's important. Uh, I come at looking at what I call my brothel owner, and I say this to my students and they always kind of laugh shyly. Um, because this was a student project that was begun in, in 2013. So it, this case study, I'm doing the first half, Casey's gonna do the second half. She is on the ground in the museum interpreting the exhibit that we did last year. Uh, but there's a, a pathway of how we got to this topic and that's what I'm gonna talk about. Um, so my classes are usually projects. So we figure out, I figure out, okay, this is a project I'm gonna do for an exhibit or I teach digital history. We're gonna, this semester we're doing a documentary on this, uh, a group of soldiers during the Spanish-American War who went to the Philippines. So uh, the first topics that I came to when I arrived at North Dakota State in 2012 were, were, was primarily about Melvina Massey. Uh, and finding and interpreting Fargo's most famous madam. So we discovered her, my students discovered her, when we were doing the research for an exhibit called Taboo Fargo-Moorhead. And we did not know exactly what was taboo in Fargo-Moorhead. And so the students went to the archive, they start looking uh, for in the records, they looked in police blotters in the late 19th century, and they kept seeing this same woman's name for running a house of ill fame or ill, repu Ill repute. Uh, once a month, it would be in this police blotter. And she paid $56.50 every month. Okay, now prostitution was not legal technically. But they, you know, the city made a pretty good living, so there are several brothels and they all pay this $56.50. So we saw that and then they started doing more research. And then they found census records. So this is, a, you can barely see it on this screen, but Melvina Massey, this is, this is 1910, uh, She's claiming to be 51 years old, and she gives several different ages throughout, in census records throughout. And the newspaper when she died said she was 73. So, um, you know, we're kind of guessing at her age because she's not being quite honest about it. We find out she's an African-American, and this is in Fargo, where in 1885, there were, out of 3,000 people, there were two African-Americans. So we have an African-American brothel owner who owns not one, but two houses outright. She owns them. And she has, we saw how many people are living in this house. In this case, there's three living in the house at this point in 1910. Um, and this is a year before she died, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. But she owned the houses outright, and she calls herself a proprietor of a house of ill fame. So she doesn't say, uh, use euphemisms, like she's a seamstress. A lot of prostitutes will say they're seamstresses. But she doesn't say that. She says exactly what she is. So my students continued the research, and they found out, or they figured out from the records, the, the 
the archival records that this, these facts. So she ran this house of ill fame between 1891 and 1910 that we prove. The first time she appears in the city directory is in 1891. And we could trace where she moved and where she lived through the city directories as well as through the Sanborn fire insurance maps. Uh, so according to the census records, she was born in Virginia, probably at some point between 1835 and 1845. And this is a guess because she doesn't tell the truth about her age, which means that she would have been a slave or a freed black woman, and the odds are she was a slave according to my research. Um, just because of where she lived, we, knew, we know her father lived in Falls Church, Virginia in 1880, and there's, you know, looking at the, the, the places around there that had big plantation, large slave owners, it, deduction tells us that she was probably a slave, uh, although that we don't know that for sure, and we say that up front. Um, as I said, she appeared in the Fargo City Directory for the first time in 1891, and her <coughs> first house appeared on a Sanborn fire insurance map in 1893, and it was labeled FB, or female boarding, which is again for the Sanborn map makers what they would say for uh, houses of ill fame or brothels. So this is her obituary in 1911. So my students figured out, they found this, and then they found her will. Uh, and so not only do we know that she is a black woman in Fargo, not only do we see all kinds of newspaper records about her being arrested for selling alcohol. Uh, she, was, she went to the penitentiary for a year, not for running a house of ill fame, but for selling alcohol. Uh, Fargo, North Dakota, became a state in 1889, and it was, when it became a state, it was a dry state. And so she, three strikes, she was out of selling alcohol in her establishment. Um, but she was noted, I mean, Aged Negress is dead. I mean, just the language alone, thinking about this is in the newspaper. Um, and it tells how she died. Uh, she had a general breakdown. And that she survived by a couple of relatives and a son. And what the funeral arrangements are. And then the students also found in the, at the archive her will. So we know how much she owned. We know the layout because we have the, the, the drawings of her house when, she got, when it got approved to be built. So we know on the downstairs it was really uh, a very much a place where you're trying to entice men. Uh, it has a dance floor. It has a spittoon uh, for tobacco. Um, it, it's, it is a place that's designed primarily for, man, for men. And we also know the upstairs from these drawings are, are cookie cutter rooms, and there's 11 of them, and they have exactly the same items in them. So the, exactly the same bed, exactly the same mattress, you know, a dresser with a bowl for washing. I mean, they're exactly the same. So it's almost a factory upstairs. So because we have these records, we kind of see this, and my students kind of go for it. 
uh, and we interpret this as part of taboo, and this is just one section of the taboo Fargo-Moorhead, um, and we start to look at the red light district. This is, uh, on the right, you have the Red River, which divides North Dakota and Minnesota. Uh, Fargo is right on the edge of, you know, of the Red River. Moorhead, Minnesota is on the other side of the river. Uh, when, during the 1890s, with Fargo being dry, they would go to Moorhead to drink, and then they would come back to the brothels on the, well, and they sometimes stayed in brothels on the Moorhead side, too. Uh, but they would come back across the bridge and go to the broth brothels in Fargo. But it's by the river, it's in a low area, it's in bottom land, so it flooded frequently. So it was cheap land, and they called this the hollow. And this is a Sanborn fire insurance map. The pinkish area are the two homes uh, that Melvina Massey owned outright. Uh, it, this is the 1905 map. The other red that you see, the dwellings, are all female boarding. So by this point, by 1905, it had spread out. It had started with just her, the lot where her houses are, and the lots on the bottom, those four on the bottom. Where, and we think those may have been crib-like, so small rooms. And hers was much more upscale. We know this from uh, the newspaper records as well. So we put together our exhibit, Taboo Fargo-Moorhead, and we interpreted five things. But one of the things that we interpreted was Madame Massey. This was up for eight months. Uh, three months in Moorhead in a place called the Yimkunk Center, uh, and this is a picture of that. Uh, we've, we've interpreted the Klan as well, violent cr crime, divorce, uh, and this is the panel uh, for prostitution and brothels uh, that we did. It was, they were very big, you know, you could see the scale in the other picture. So this was a hit with the community. There, lots of people came to see it. And so the students were still intrigued by Madame Massey, as was I. And so in the fall of 2013, we created a documentary, uh, Fargo's Most Famous Madam. And we detailed in 23 minutes this woman, her life, what we know about her, what it means. Uh, we did some interviews with people who are experts on particular areas. Uh, and you can see that, and this is just an image of, it's on Vimeo, uh, and I have a link for you. Um, and then again, we had a public opening, so the community is beginning to learn about Madame Massey. Uh, you know, because we have this big, the opening for Taboo, Fargo-Moorhead, we have the opening for the film, uh, and people are beginning, I mean, the newspapers come, they cover us. Um, and then the next thing that happens in a series of things is in 2016, we, have, we do a dig. They start to build, uh, there's a new, and it's, it's not finished yet, uh, a new city hall. Fargo had outgrown their city hall. They had started to build a new one. And where uh, the old city hall was, was right across the street from the area that had been the red light district in Fargo. And when they started building the new one, we knew that the parking lot that was on, that was there, that they were gonna dig up, was where 
her two homes had been. And we talked to uh, some architects who knew the history of that area and that it had been torn, the two houses had been torn down in the 50s with urban renewal. And they told us that when they built the parking lot, they basically just pushed the, the foundations in and built the uh, parking lot over the top of it. So they said there's still stuff under there and we're like, oh my goodness. And I had been begun working with an anthropologist in the anthropology department. We, we had been going to the archives in Bismarck and trying to get more information. She's the one that does the interpretation of the spaces uh, in the Crystal Palace. And, and she argues that those, there's masculine spaces and then there are spaces upstairs that are much more like a, a factory almost in their approach. Um, and she makes interpretation about those facts. And so we've begun working together before we had an opportunity to try to get a dig uh, going. Well, we went to this, the, the uh, historical commission. They were all for it. They wanted us to do it. Went to the mayor, off, wanted us to dig. Um, then we started talking to the, the architect of the, the new city hall, and they're like, I don't know, liability, liability, liability. I don't know if we can do that. And in, we kept begging, begging, and going and talking to people. The newspapers were, we want to do, we want to dig, we want to see what's there. In the end, what they let us do, and I was out there alone for a long time, I'm standing, there's giant equipment, and I knew where it had been. We had done GIS, and so we kind of knew where the building had been. And I said, okay, here, here, and here. And so they start to move the dirt. They put them in giant dump trucks. They had four or five giant dump trucks of dirt that they carried to the landfill. And we got to go through uh, what had been there. And then her students uh, went through the objects and dated them and figured out, they were trying to figure out if they had been used during the period of Melvina Massey. If you do a control dig, you know. You can see where they were, they are, the object is in the strata, and you can figure more time in. Uh, but we, we did not have that luxury, but we did the best we could with what we had. Um, so these photos are, that's me digging through the dirt as they were pulling it up. Uh, old tires, glass, tons of bottles, uh, some of them from the period, some of them not. It's a mishmash. And these are the piles at the landfill that we were going through. And we found all kinds of things, and several things that were dated to the period of Massey. And this is, you have students, we were, you know, sifting through the dirt, they're looking for things. Um, so, and this was really fun, and it, it really engaged the community, engaged us. The students were way into it. They loved Melvina Massey. Uh, and so in the next, in the spring of 2017, last year, uh, I had, was teaching another museum studies class, and we decided to do, to, to partner with Kristen Fellows, my anthropologist partner, uh, with her students doing research on the objects and my students designing and putting together a, another exhibit that we titled uh, Uncovering Vice, Fargo-Moorhead, where we're interpreting Madame Massey, we're interpreting the Crystal Palace, 
We're interpreting uh, the objects that we found and how we found them. And so in this exhibit, we were very specific about Madame Massey and who she was and how she got there. We showed the film we made in 2013. We created a little theater uh, so people could go and sit down. And these are a couple, these are, are some pictures, and Casey's gonna talk a little bit more about this, of this, we, we built a facade of the Crystal Palace there and then we're interpreting in this Madame Massey, there's furs on the right that you can barely see. We're interpreting alcohol and the alcohol laws and the impact that alcohol laws had on her and her business. Um, but we're also conscious that children are not gonna necessarily understand this, but Anzaville is a, is a, is a family-oriented place. It's where, I mean, the 4th of July, you take your family to Bonanzaville. So to, to deal with that, this is one of the, the strategies that we have, that this content, can, content may not be appropriate for children under 12. Um, so we're trying to work with that. So thinking about how to interpret sex, a lot of what I'm doing with this uh, particular project is not talking out loud. It's, it's more a subtext than it is a text. But when you're thinking about an African-American woman who was perhaps born in slavery, who comes, who knows how, I can't, I've done all kinds of research. I can't, I can't figure out exactly how she got from Virginia to North Dakota, although I do know that she came through Minneapolis and there's, there's some connections there. Um, but she had a lot of power. She had power in the community. She was not hesitant to go to fight in court. She was in court all the time. The court records, I mean, there's a pile of court records this thick of her going to court, affidavits. She was not shy about this. She had power in the community. And she lived in a kind of a liminal place, a place in between the domestic and the public. She was in between. I mean, the newspaper said when she came back from her year in prison that her friends met her at the train station and celebrated that she was back. And when she was in prison in Bismarck, she was the only woman at the prison. And it's, it, you, there, there is a prison record that they will not let me see because of privacy laws, <laughs> which is another, what? <laughs> she died in 1911. <laughs> um, so, the takeaway on this, besides public engagement, and I'm gonna go through these pictures. This is found objects, so we displayed the objects. Uh, the takeaway from this is public engagement was a big deal. When we opened this exhibit last year, it was overflowing. They had written about it, not just in the daily newspaper, but in the weekly, and there was an editorial that you know, they, that they didn't know if we were gonna let them, they were going to let us tell, really tell the story. And I'm like, I don't know, understand what you're talking about, but uh, because we did tell the story. Um, but it was overflowing. There was a lot of interest in this topic. Uh, perhaps because it's distant from today, that we don't, you know, when you have a red light district, it's in the public. You know, people know where it is, they know what to avoid it or not avoid it. Uh, 
once they took the red light districts away, where does his where does sex worker where do they go? You know, police will take them off the streets, but you don't have records to try to find them, so it becomes really hard. Um, so, in closing, um, I came to this through the back door, but I'm fascinated with a couple of things about Melvina Massey. Number one, how much power she had in the community, that she owned two houses and had money and diamonds and furs when she died, and she was an African-American woman who was probably born into slavery. Her relationship with herself and her body, you know, okay, you're a slave, and you don't have control of your body, but then you become a brothel owner, and you do have control of your body. How do you see sex? And I, I, that just, I mean, that kind of conundrum is, is interesting to me. And I, I've written, like Susan, a collected volume chapter that uh, Kristen Fellows and I are putting together a historic, uh, historical sex work collected volume of anthropologists and archeologists and historians talking about dealing with this topic and how we know what we know. And my, my interest goes into this idea of the African-American woman and her body, slavery period into this period and then analyze, through the eyes of, uh, of Melvina Massey. So I will. Next up, Casey Lynn Johnson. Okay, uh, hello. Uh, as was mentioned, um, I worked on the uh, exhibit with Dr. Smith in the class. I was one of the graduate students in the classroom. Uh, and I also work at another historic site as well. And so I, on a day-to-day -day basis, am interpreting sex, but also seeing the results of the exhibit. Um, so I kind of have more, a more hands-on approach to um, interpreting sex, especially in small museums, um, such as we have in Fargo-Moorhead. Uh, so first, I, I looked at why it's starting to become okay to, why it's able to talk about vice now, sex now, and I think a lot of that has to do with more media portrayals. Um, there have been some studies, and it shows that we're being more exposed to sexual content through media. Um, a major study of uh, films made by major studios from 1950 to 2006 indicated that there was something like 85% of those including some kind of scene of sexual content. Now, the sexual content ranged from things like innuendo and passionate kisses to sex, um, and they covered all uh, ratings, so from G to are. Um, and then they also found uh, in television programming from 11 major networks that um, at least 82% of those shows had episodes that also had some instance of sexual content. And what this means is that we're just more exposed to it and maybe more tolerant or if not tolerant, at least more uh, used to it. Um, and so that was kind of the jumping point. Um, 1947 was the first time that a couple was depicted in the same bed on national television. Um, from there, you get other milestones that just show the progression of it becoming more socially acceptable. Uh, so um, going with that, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about Bonanzaville, where I work, and then how the uh, 
how we interpret it there. Um, so it's a 12-acre museum located in West Fargo, North Dakota. It has everything from a main museum, and then we have a collection of over 40 historic and reconstructed buildings um, on site that people are able to go on self-guided tours of. Um, and our visitors are usually around 55 and families with small children. That's our biggest group. Um, so again, that's kind of where our interpretation is targeted. Uh, but another key group that we have out there is our school tours in May. So we have over 3,000 school children that come in and we have to be very conscious of what we're showing them in the village. Um, and so, like I said before, our interpretation seems to be more geared towards um, implied and subtext versus explicitly stated things and text. Uh, so uh, going from there, we do have the Inter Uncovering Vice Fargo-Moorhead exhibit, which is the only place in the village that sex is explicitly discussed. And Dr. Smith kind of talked about the things that um, are talked about in the exhibit um, itself. But I was part of the team that was designing the exhibit, and we had several choices we had to make when doing the exhibit. Um, we did build a facade, and you'll see there it has red windows for the red light district. Um, that was kind of referencing that. And at one point, we had wanted to make, um, Dr. Smith talked about upstairs, there were those factory-type rooms. And we were hoping to be able to interpret a factory-type room with the bed and maybe a dresser. And the previous curator, prior to uh, myself taking the post, did not want to do that because we have 3,000 school children coming through and because she thought it was too suggestive. Um, so we didn't end up putting a bed in there. Um, and so in the end, we just kind of still talking about sex. We very much acknowledged she was a brothel owner. She was you know, running a business, but still kind of a subtext language. Um, the video that we show doesn't show the actors' faces. Um, we don't talk about the men who are visiting her uh, you know, who are frequenting this establishment. Uh, so there are those things that we had to fight with. But the main thing to take away from this exhibit is that it showed us that the community was okay with us talking about this. They came out in droves to see it. This is one of our number one most popular exhibits we have at Bonanzaville. Um, it's been up for two years now. And that's because sex sells, sex people are interested in sex. Um, and I have never, so we do have that sign that says under 12 may not be appropriate. However, chaperones don't always keep the closest eye on their, ch their kids during school tours. So there are kids who go in there and they don't care. They don't get it. They just kind of look around and then they're much more interested in the archeology span uh, portion we have in the back. So uh, there are kids going in there and I've never had a parent or a chaperone or anybody complain to me or any member of staff about the exhibit being too inappropriate. So again, it shows us that we can interpret sex out in our village in areas that maybe now rely on subtext. So I'm gonna go through a few of those areas now. Uh, the first place is the Brass Rail Saloon. It's a saloon and hotel that was built in 1889 uh, in Page, North Dakota, which is a tiny, tiny town. Uh, this is it about 1915, the interior space. Um, and this hotel was interesting because upstairs it has a lot of bedrooms for people to stay in and they all have these single beds in them every single one of them has a similar setup to this room right here until you get to this room right here this is the bridal suite and it has a double bed and it's a place where many newlywed couples went and stayed after they were married and they do they do call it the bridal suite for 75 cents this could be your honeymoon um, <laughs> <laughs> they do call it the bridal suite. They don't call it the double suite. They don't call it that. It is specifically called the bridal suite, which means that this is the place where most people who are getting married in Page 
were consummating their marriages. And so that's an interesting thing to think about and that we can interpret um, tactfully in the museum. Uh, the brass rail also is currently undergoing renovations. Um, it's a little bit messy in this picture. Um, and so when it reopens, it's going to give us an opportunity to discuss that kind of situation, but also the situation of prostitutes. Prostitutes use hotels as the places where they do their business. Um, so this is an arrest record from 1929 for a person getting arrested for carnal knowledge. Uh, that means that he was ex uh, having sex outside of marriage, pretty much, without the benefit of marriage. But you also see a lot of arrest records from the 10s, teens, 20s, 30s of people getting arrested for something called resorting to rooms or resorting to rooms for an immoral act. And that almost always means prostitution. And usually in the arrest records, it'll be a man and then a woman, and then a man and then a woman. Although I did find one with three men and three women from one night, so <laughs> I, wonder, <laughs> I wonder what's going on there. Um, but this is something that we can interpret. We can say this is like hotels were not just for travelers, they were for people using them on a day-to-day -day basis for sex. Uh, moving on to um, one of the typical farmhouses we have at Bonanzaville. This is the Trangsrud house. It was built in 1871, and it was lived in by the Trangsrud family. This is Amund, Rika, and their seven children. And just to give you kind of scale, this is the house. It's very small. So all nine members of the family were living in this closed quarters, closed space. Uh, they did build a bigger house, but not until 1908, and their last child was born in 1907. The whole family shared those two beds upstairs, all of them. And it's interesting to think that obviously Amund and Rika were having sex. She had eight pregnancies and seven survived, but they were also having sex with their children in the room. Like, they, it's an interesting how we treat sex nowadays and then how they treated it back then. And also looking at that too, that's a large family, seven children. I'll talk later about a family that's even larger. And the interesting today, we don't see families that large today usually. Um, and it's because children were contributing economically to the household. So again, are they having kids for having, because they're having sex? Are they having kids for labor force? It's an interesting thing that you can interpret in this space. Also birth control. Birth control wasn't really available back then. so you're gonna have as many kids as you're having sex. So. Uh, next place is a school, and that might seem an, like an odd place to interpret sex in a village. Uh, this school is called the Dobrin School, and this school is a place to discuss sex because it's called the Dobrin School because it was named after the Dobrin's family where it was built on their property. And the reason it was built on their property is because they had 13 children. Their children pretty much made up the entire class. So, and in fact, one of them ended up teaching there. So uh, again, not explicitly stating that this is a sex, uh, area to talk about sex, but still the subtext is there and also it is an area that we could do some sort of interpretation. Uh, so the next site I work at is the Comstock House in Moorhead, Minnesota. I work as an interpreter and then as well as uh, I help out with events and uh, do some event planning. And uh, it tells the lives of Solomon and Sarah Comstock and their children. Solomon was a very early resident of Moorhead. He uh, was the first Clay County attorney in Moorhead. So he's kind of a prominent member of the society. And the house is really a place where we just kind of uh, tell what he did for the community. 
and it is filled with all its original furnishings and all its original fixtures, and so that really helps us when we're interpreting the space. Um, these are guided tours, so they're much more intimate, and the nice thing about the guided tours is that we're able to tailor them to people, so if it's got families, we do like an I spy game with the kids. One of my favorites is spot all the chamber pots. <laughs> There's a lot of them. Um, but also, we try to do something where we try to like dispel the myth of Victorian idyllic life. I mean, yes, they followed Victorian social mores, but they were real people living lives like us. And so we kind of try to do that. And one of those ways is we talk about them, all of the members of the family and not just Solomon. So this is Solomon and Sarah. Uh, they met in 1874 and were married less than 11 months later. Uh, their relationship is described on the tour as whirlwind and passionate. We have love letters between them and they are quite passionate between the two of them. Um, and it goes back to talking about not just sex as the act of sex, but um, courtship and things like that. And so they really did have a passionate courtship. Sarah, a little bit about her, she was Canadian English and she was visiting her sister who was Solomon's law partner's wife and that's how they met. But she was 30 years old and she was a school teacher. And she didn't really feel a need to get married. She wasn't looking for a husband at this point. Um, but Solomon and herself were of very similar social backgrounds. He was the same age as her. And so they were more friends, I think, at first, and then just became lovers after that um, in terms of when they got married. And you know, a lot of ladies at this time were marrying men who were older than them because they could provide security. And again, they were the same age. So it's an interesting uh, way to look at their relationship. So, oh, and then like a proper Victorian lady, Sarah did give up her job after she got married. Uh, she, like I said, she had been a school teacher, but she was still very much active in her community. Um, that's kind of what a Victorian middle-class lady would do at that time. Uh, so Sarah and Solomon had three children. Uh, Ada and Jesse were born quite within a few years of each other. And then about seven years later, George was born. And the large gap between the ages uh, indicates that they never have stopped having sex between their children. Um, in fact, they shared a room for most of their marriage, which they had in uh, difference to the Trangsergood family who was all living in one room. They had a four bedroom house with a maid's bedroom as well. So there was five bedrooms in their home. They didn't necessarily have to share a room, but they did. Um, I do know that they did sleep separate after George was born while she was nursing him. Uh, and we do have a room we call the birthing room because that's the room she gave birth to George in. So uh, an interesting uh, look at their marriage is that we do know that they were quite passionate and etc. Uh, so a little bit about two of their children. Uh, the lady, Jessie Mae Comstock, she was their middle daughter, and she could easily be passed over with a simple, she never got married. Uh, but her life was so much more than just being a, a spinster. She was one of the first in her family to travel abroad. She was highly educated. Um, Sarah, when she was raising them, didn't actually teach them how to cook or a lot of other domestic skills. They actually heavily encouraged them to get an education. Um, these girls went to uh, Smith College. Uh, she studied abroad at Oxford University, um, and she graduated, and she went to Radcliffe as well. So she um, got a master's at Radcliffe, or uh, Columbia, sorry, Columbia. Um, and so, again, a very unique upbringing for that time period. Her mother was born in 1840, she was born in 1879, and so it's this very, right in the heart of Victorian, Victoriana. Um, but there is an interesting thing about Jessie, and that's she, um, 
did not live alone after her parents died. She was living in the home and she had a companion named Lulu. We don't know a lot about Lulu, but we do know that Jessie left her money. And with this, we tell people, you know, she never married. She did have a companion. They always ask us about her sexuality. Was she a lesbian? Was she asexual? And the truth is we don't know. But if we did know, we wouldn't shy away from it. We would be upfront and honest with them. But because we have a lack of evidence on her life, she wrote her life story, but she threw it in a fire in a fit of rage, because that's what you do. Um, <laughs> she, uh, nobody published it, that's why. Uh, so we don't know. But again, it does bring up that conversations, that we can bring up conversations about sexuality in Victorian England, or England, America, sorry, in North Dakota specifically. Um, so it is a way for us to share and interpret sex in a historic site. Uh, lastly, I do want to talk about their other daughter, Ada. She was their eldest, had a similar upbringing to her sister. She became the first dean of women at the University of Minnesota, and she was the first president of Radcliffe College. She would have been considered a spinster for most of her life. Um, she wasn't really interested in getting married, I think, at that point. She was part of a Wickersham Commission, which was a commission founded by President Hoover to find out why prohibition was failing. She was personally asked by him, and she was the only woman. I know, right? <laughs> but she was the only woman on the commission, and she was personally asked by the president. So there's actually a photo of her on the lawn of the White House with the Wickersham Commission, and she's easily identifiable because she's the only woman in the photo. But um, so she would have been considered a spinster as well. But I don't think it mattered to her. And she did eventually get married, but only after she had retired and done everything she wanted to do in her life uh, in her 60s. And they were married for over 25 years. So apparently it worked for them. But these are just ways that we can talk about sexuality in a historic home is by using the family and using the women in particular too to kind of bring home that point. So I think we're going to talk, uh, open it up for questioning, et cetera. Yes, thank you. So um, we definitely do want to open it up for questions or discussion. We're fascinated with this topic. We'd love to hear about other efforts out in the field. I will tell everyone that this session is being audio recorded uh, for distribution later. And so there's no microphone in the audience. So when you ask a question, we up here will repeat it. And then just to remind the panelists to speak into the microphone when you're answering questions. Yes? So I think this goes to Dr. Smith. Um, my name is Bill Peterson, and uh, I wrote an article for a book that Max um, edited on African-Americans, interpreting African-Americans at historic sites. In your research, did you find uh, more of a community or was the woman that you talked about, I can't remember her name. Melanie Massey. Was she um, kind of isolated? Or were there other African Americans in the community around her? She was. Were, were there other African-Americans around Melvina Massey in Fargo while she was there? No. Which is, which is actually uh, interesting, because her, her son had never been to Fargo, and she, she lived there over 20 years. Uh, and he came after she died for the first time. Uh, Fargo is a very, very white place. Uh, I mean, well, I mean, today it's still relatively white. The, there's a lot of African immigrants, uh, refugees that, that are resettled there. Um, but historically it's been very Norwegian, Scandinavian. Uh, so she came there, and we think that there 
was some kind of uh, association, like a, a informal association of people trying to help, I mean, brothel owners trying to help other brothel owners along the, the Transcontinental Railroad as it was coming up, setting up these businesses. Um, I also argue in my chapter in, in the, the collected volume that she did not want to be close to her family doing this kind of work on purpose. Uh, I mean, just, I mean, I'm guessing, it's not that I know what she thought, thinks, but just the distance, she loved her son, she left her son most of what she owned. Uh, but, you know, African Americans after the Civil War are trying to be upstanding citizens. That's a drive in the African American community. Uh, and what she was doing was not necessarily seen as an upstanding profession. Yes. In the back? You? <laughs> yeah. So the question is, did Melvina Massey have control over these other, other women who worked for her body? And are they white, she's asking. Some of them were black, some of them were white. Um, and then she, there was a black woman, another black woman, who ran her second brothel, uh, because you know, she had two buildings. And so there was another African-American woman who did uh, had was in charge of that building, according to the records. Um, it, it's I don't know. Maybe I mean, it, it, is she? I mean, this is one of the things that kind of are question marks. That how do we figure this out? Uh, is she exploiting other women? You know, I mean, that's a quandary. I don't know. I like to see her personally as a hero for me, because she, look what she did in this very white world with men in, that are in charge of pretty much everything in Fargo and Moorhead. Uh, and she, you know, she's in court all the time. She's fighting judges. They're trying to shut her down. Uh, you know, I kind of see her as a hero, but at the same time, I understand that it's not that simple that it's much more complex than that. And how can we get to that? How can we answer that question? If you have ideas, I'd really like to know, Julie. <laughs> <laughs> wanted to know what you thought. Yeah, yeah. But I'm also open to ideas. <laughs> Other questions? Yes. Um, so you said that your message was largely delivered uh, through subtext. Yes. And I was wondering if you think that is the most successful strategy for your museum and similar institutions going forward? Is this or so the question was: Is subtext the best? Uh, what we found works best in our museum, and or are there other ideas going forward that we can use? Uh, subtext has worked for us because of our uh, the people who are coming to see us: small families with small children, and generally um, people who are older than 55. But with, like we mentioned earlier, with Uncovering Vice, it did open our eyes to the fact that we could talk about sex a little bit more than subtext and still be successful and not offend anybody if it's done right. And so what we want to do going forward is incorporate more of that dialogue into our village interpretation. The village is currently being um, 
slowly reinterpreted um, as, you know, interpretation has changed since the 1980s when most of this was done. So um, for us, we do want to go forward being a little bit more explicit. How explicit we take that will take a little bit more time for us to figure out, but we think we, we are able to go more explicit in this instance, but subtext has been the way that we have worked it. In the back on this side? Yeah, you. Yeah. Uh, well, initially when we were, oh, sorry. So have we received pushback from uh, board members or other staff members um, when we're doing this interpretation? Um, the answer is, when, like I said earlier, when we were designing it, we did get some pushback from the previous curator who was a little bit worried about too suggestive. Um, but that's always good because then it opens up a dialogue and you can, can kind of reserve, uh, resolve it. But as far as the board goes or community, there was not a lot of heavy pushback um, from that. Um, our board is not out there on a day-to-day -day basis, though. Um, they were invited to the opening. Several did attend. They seemed to enjoy it at the time. So there was no major pushback from other staff or the board members at the time we did this one. I have not told them of my plan to reinterpret more sex yet, uh, but we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. In the back. The question is, are we trying to incorporate uh, information about sex workers today uh, into our interpretation? Uh, this, is, this is an area that concerns me. I did a panel last spring at NCPH with two of my friends who work for the Park Service, and they are very adamant about make, making the bridge from historical sex work to contemporary sex work. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm leery, maybe it's, it's too much historian and not enough interpreter, uh, but I'm leery because I don't know enough about contemporary sex work to feel qualified to talk about it, me personally. And of course I'm doing it in a class and we're doing things in a semester, and so trying to dig and find the, the, the lay of the land of how this, you know, contemporary sex work. Though, uh, I think that's something that certainly I want to do in the future, not of finding ways to do it. Partnering with people, with sociologists perhaps, who, who know this landscape, uh, but myself, I don't feel qualified uh, to do that. And if I could also add, I attended as an audience member that session that Angela mentioned at the National Council for Pub Public History. And, um, and a debate broke out in the audience that I found very interesting about um, how we interpret sex work in the past. Do we see it as a, um, a form of agency within an oppressive sexual system for women to 
um, be financially independent to, to earn their own living and, um, and express their own sexuality? Do we see it as sexual victimization? Um, and that also ties into many questions in contemporary sex work. And so um, there weren't, any, we didn't solve that question, but, um, but it, it raised some really interesting issues. And then even the question of like, who gets to make that decision, right? <laughs> About people in the past, like gets into questions of, of power related to sexual systems and the history of sexuality. Yes. Or any of you, but in your line of in your line of research, is there are there any um, what I would I don't mean to use this kind of glibly, but any exciting new lines of interpretation that you see you know coming forward um, that have some promise for for the future outside of that you know kind of very traditional narrative? Well, I think that I think simply. I didn't repeat the question, excuse me. Um, so the question is what are um, innovative trends in interpretation on this topic? And um, I think that the simple fact that we are seeing interpretation of the history of sexuality more frequently is in and of itself exciting. And also that, um, it, we're, we as professionals in this field are willing to interrogate sexual norms. We're seeing a little more about non-normative sexuality. It's not you know, just they met, they fell in love, and they lived happily ever after. Um, there's a lot of LGBT interpretation. There's um, beginning to be discussions of asexual, asexuality as an identity um, of, of sex work. And I think just the simple, like at this point, kind of any interpretation of history of sexuality that's informed by the scholarship is, it's, we're still at the phase where that in and of itself is exciting. But another very exciting trend, I think, in our field is um, tying the interpretation of the past to contemporary issues of social justice. And, um, and there's potential to do that within the realm of many of these topics. For instance, um, issues of access to birth control, sexual violence, um, the, the agency expressed or not expressed in, in sex work. And um, do we have anyone from President Lincoln's Cottage? We did, but any other staff people here? They're doing some very interesting work in um, making connections with Abraham Lincoln's, uh, the development of his thinking about the Emancipation Proclamation and contemporary human trafficking, and um, including sex trafficking. Very interesting stuff at a historic site that could be very traditional in their interpretation as a presidential site, but they're they're really pushing what can be done in it, and that actually leads, if we have time. Oh, can I make oh, one yes. comment? Uh, one other thought about new avenues of, of research and interpretation it is what my partner Kristen Fellows, looking at space and place 
and masculinities. What are these spaces designed for? Who were they designed for? I've, I find it fascinating because it, you can analyze the things that were in the space and try to understand the context of those and who's living it. It tells you something about the people and the way it felt to be in that space. Uh, and I think that's, and, and that's new in terms of, of historians who have not written about that at all. Anthropologists have, have delved into it a little, but not in terms of historical sex work. And that question also presents us with the opportunity uh, in the last five minutes of our session to hear about pl interpretive plans at your sites or things you're thinking of or things that you're already interpreting at your sites. Is there anyone that's got something in the works they want to share? No. All right, well, I'm giving you, <laughs> yeah. talking about earlier and the debate at NCPH and how um, how we paint uh, prostitution in the past, sex work in the past. Um, and it relates back to, I think, your original comment about um, engaging with, with sex workers today and showing that spectrum from both you know, a victimization standpoint and an empowerment standpoint, and then allowing, kind of backing into that question. So here's the spectrum today, here's what we know about the past, and then you as the visitor can make a somewhat more informed decision. Um, you know, and I, I don't know if you had any comments about that potentially as a, as a way to get at that debate about the, the, how we paint it I do have comments about that, and I acknowledge that someone else does too, and, and um, we'll get to you in just a minute. So that was a great commentary that we didn't catch on the audio recording, but basically um, it involved the potential of um, presenting issues of the present and issues of the past and using that as an opportunity for, to, for visitors to engage and kind of make their own connections. And um, my comment on that would be simply adding to it, we didn't really have time to get into the specifics of like, how do you even find out this information about the past? Angela uh, did a good job of just giving you a glimpse of it, but that could be its own workshop, right? How do you find sex in primary sources and artifacts? Um, but there are a lot of holes. Certainly there are ways to find out about it, but you're not going, chances are your historic house does not have records of that family <laughs> talking about their sexual awakening. I mean, and if you do, you really need to be interpreting sexuality at your site. But, you know, so there's gaps in the historical record, and it's a great potential for, um, for bringing visitors into the historical process. It's like, we know this about the time period, we have this clue from the specific sources of these people, and that's what we got, like, you know, and then we have to draw conclusions. You can draw conclusions, like how, what do we make of this evidence that we have? So, and then there was another comment in the back, or was it a new question? No, it was a comment. Yeah. The, part of the problem with this particular type of research is that there is no record because of the illegal 
Um, and the same with talking to current people is that you're asking them to admit to a crime. So it's not impossible, but you have to be a little more creative with how you're drawing your inferences and stuff. And so um, it's not like as straightforward as these guys made it look easy, but I know that it wasn't for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the excellent point that so much of the information um, that we want to talk about or that I want you to talk about <laughs> within this subtopic was historically against the law. And so that just makes the sources that much harder to find. And um, ju just as a historical anecdote, um, I have been doing some work on the sex researcher, Alfred Kinsey, um, who did a really extensive study of American sexual behavior, white American sexual behavior in, um, in the 1930s and 1940s, the Kinsey reports, if you're familiar with them. And as part of that report, Kinsey made the argument that based on his research, 95% of white males in this country at that time had broken the law in pursuit of um, sexual desire. So just to tell, it's like interracial <laughs> relations were illegal, sex outside of marriage was illegal, prostitution was illegal. And so um, it does make it really, it's a you know very different time, right? Historically, uh, historically, our understandings of sex have changed. So when it's illegal, it becomes that much harder to identify in the sources. Any other questions? We, I think we got time for one more. Yep. All right. I was just wondering, mm -hmm. um, you kept talking about having uh, family visitors and then 55 plus, and that you have, are kind of forced into subtext with that. But if you were to move away from that, if, if you saw it with your exhibit that was more explicit, if you attracted a new audience. <laughs> that reminded me to repeat the question. Uh, she's, she asked if um, we, because of our audience, we felt we had to stick to subtext. And I just lost my train of thought. What was the rest of, the, what was the rest of your question? If you've oh, if we have attracted a new audience with the Vice exhibit. The answer is yes. yes. Yes, we have seen a whole different ages. People have come in specifically to view the exhibit. Maybe people we would not have had normally. Um, come in, like I said, it's usually small families and um, the elderly because the elderly remember almost, the elderly know what it was like as a pioneer because most of them still lived in those same houses. Nice. I'm not, it's true. <laughs> like my grandmother walked in and said that left the recipe is wrong. So, you know, they are here. But yes, we have definitely seen a new audience with it. Um, our social media has grown a little bit too, which allows us to um, has allowed us to like expand our programming as well as a result of this too. We're reaching more people. Um, we just had an event, a murder mystery event in our saloon, the saloon. And so we were dressed up as 1920s flappers and there was a whole discussion about that too. So definitely new audiences, new people reached. Well, and the, the coverage from the media also helped that because they, the, the community kind of becomes, oh, I heard about, my neighbors told me, oh, I heard about this. Is that you? <laughs> Which was kind of funny, too. Yeah. Well, uh, we are out of time, but as with all AASLH sessions, we have um, evaluation sheets. They're blue. 
There's a few up here. There's more in the back. Please uh, pick one up on your way and then drop them, drop them off. Either leave them in this room or drop them off at the registration desk. I thank you for coming, thank and uh, we're going to be hanging out a little bit.